Fellas, welcome back to the show. We've got a great episode today with Dan Garner. If you guys don't know, Dan Garner is one of the OGs in fitness and nutrition. He's the nutritionist for a number of world-class athletes, including Sean O'Malley. We talk about optimal nutrition for performance, defining what performance is, as well as digging into the more complex nuance behind lab testing and blood work. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode. Make sure to subscribe on Spotify if you haven't already. Join the Telegram and check Dan out on all of his socials. Godspeed. Dan, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem, man. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. It is. And, you know, right off the bat, one thing that you talk about a lot is nutrition for performance. And that's really your emphasis area, among other things. But my question is, you know, what does performance mean to you? Have you chewed on that word? Because there's so many different applications of it. Sure. So performance to me uh, means the encompassing um, output of whatever you want to be able to do in your specific output, be it MMA, be it grappling, be it baseball, be it uh, hockey, whatever it's going to be, you need to have a large degree of specificity in the performance development of that specific lane, because an adaptation in one lane may appear as a maladaptation in another. So you can't treat all athletes the same. Sometimes a structural imbalance is actually advantageous to somebody who only rotates in one direction, like a PGA golfer, always only rotating in one direction, a baseball player, always only rotating in one direction for their shot. Same with hockey. Some of these things that we actually see, well, that's not structurally imbalanced. That's not perfection in the world of physical therapy. But it's perfection in the world of baseball, perfection in the world of the PGA Tour. So it's actually so important to understand the difference between adaptations and maladaptations. And beyond this, when it comes to performance, uh, you need to consider the system as a whole. Um, I, I've always separated myself from the pack because when you look at the nutrition world, everybody is so emphasized on the muscle cell. How do we hydrate the muscle? How do we give electrolytes to the muscle? How do we recover the muscle? And how do we fuel the muscle? But at the same time, I've always tried to pull myself out of that lens because I feel like muscular nutrition is 101. But then when you actually begin to incorporate the immune system, the endocrine system, gut health, mental performance, mental performance is huge. Like an example that I've used a lot in the past is um, uh, gymnasts, like female gymnasts in the Olympics. If you line up the top 10 female gymnasts, about all of them are under five foot two and they're all about 100 pounds. They have unbelievable mobility. They're so relatively strong. They're so coordinated. There's so many things that are just so identical between them all. So who's going to win that day? It's who's in the zone. Who has neural performance? Who has brain performance? Who has done the visualization? Who has the routines? It is the mind that tells the body what to do with respect to performance and not the other way around. So if I was a coach trying to drive maximum performance and I didn't understand true adaptations and I didn't understand systemic performance, then I would only be doing half the job for my athletes. Gotcha. I like that you immediately bring up the mindset aspect. I've seen a lot of your content recently revolving around that. And that's something a lot of people have a hard time conceptualizing is how much our mental state of how much of an effect that has on us as an organism. There really isn't much of a distinction between our brain and body. The example I always go to is we know how much of an effect stress can have on your hormones. I mean, cortisol that is directly driven almost primarily by stress. It's a stress response. How do you explain that? How do you rationalize the functions of mindset in terms of how they apply to your body? Like how does visualization change you biologically, if, if any at all? 
Visualization can certainly change you biologically with respect to preparation. I've always said in a big way that preparation is the seed of confidence and you are only ever going to be maximally prepared or you're only ever going to be confident in what you are maximally prepared for. Like if you were, everybody has felt this when they were a kid at school. If you were to come to the front of the class and present your project that you did last night at midnight at the last second, you are going to feel unprepared and you're not going to feel very confident. And that's kind of the whole reason you feel like you suck at public speaking. You don't suck at public speaking. You suck at preparing to public speak. So the actual physiological change is the reduction in heart rate the reduction in catecholamine and stress hormone output because you are maximally prepared for that day. And I think a huge component of preparation is visualization and even mind games that you can play with yourself and environmental triggers that you can use too. Like in the world of MMA, with respect to triggers, George St. Pierre would get in the octagon, he'd sprint to one side and sprint back to the other and then start bouncing. Um, Anderson Silva would always open his arms up and then bounces back off the back of the cage and come back up. John Jones crawls into the octagon. They all have these exact same rituals that act as triggers that were a part of their visualization in them achieving success. That is psychology meeting physiology and ultimately getting you into that sports-specific flow state that is mind and body. Gotcha. And how can people apply that for the non-athletes, right, from a day-to-day basis, does that carry over to showing up at work, showing up on things like podcasts? Are there things people can do to kind of elicit that same level of energy and visualization? I think so. I think in a big way. Like I think a lot of people think about meditation as if you have to be in an orange robe at the top of a mountain with your hand, with your hands like this. Um, you don't. It, it can be very short, and it can be something as simple as. Uh, refocusing your mind. So I work from home, for example. So I have all the ability to be distracted. I can be on social media. I can be looking at my email. I can be on Slack. I could be on Trello. I could be doing all of these things that aren't actually moving the the needle forward. They're not making me better at my craft. They're not making my athletes better. It's busy work rather than productive work. But if you can sit back and meditate for 60 to 90 seconds, and you could just sit back and close your eyes And just imagine something twirling in 3D in your brain, just twirling. Imagine it's just a tennis ball. Your eyes are closed. There's a tennis ball twirling inside your head in 3D. That's actually going to shut things down. So you're moving from an erratic state into a calm state. So if I'm eating breakfast and I've got Instagram and Facebook and YouTube playing, it's a state of erratic. I've got my very, very scattered. It does not take long for you to sit down, calm down, and put horse blinders on. 60 to 90 seconds of that twirling meditation begins to put the horse blinders on. So when you open your eyes again, that is the John Jones crawling into the octagon, you're actually ready to go much quicker into a state of deep work and productive action rather than slowly put the horse blinders on. I'm going to answer my emails first. I'm going to look at my DMs and then I'm going to see if that girl posted online. And then I'm going to, and the, the, the blinders slowly come on over the course of 20 to 30 minutes and your transition time and your coordination cost is very high. But if I have a brain game that I can do, then I'm going to be able to enter that deep state of work much quicker. This is something you can do for work. This is something you can do for the gym. This is something you can do for a podcast. Like, for example, this podcast. 
one thing that you can actually do for speech preparedness is you actually have five syllables and then you use those syllables in a sentence and then you write that sentence three times. So it's something that is um, comprehensive, five syllables. 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine is actually a urinary metabolite for oxidative stress. So that that is 8H2DG, 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 8H2DG. I'm actually going to repeat that five times. And then I'm going to use that in a sentence five times. 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine is a marker for oxidative stress. 8-hydroxy-2-deoxyguanosine is a marker for oxidative stress. I'm going to say that five times, and then I'm going to write it down five times. And you're able to assess speech preparedness because on some day you're going to go 8H2DG, 8H2DG, 8H2DG. And then other days you're going to be like 8H2DG, 8-2, I mean H-D-G. You're actually going to be able to assess speech preparedness and speech readiness that day. And then it also acts as an overwarm-up. So there's something in strength known as an overwarm-up to where if my hypertrophy sets that day are at 250 on the bench press, I might overwarm up to 285 so that I'm actually activating my nervous system to a very high level at 285. So then when I drop back down from my work sets at 250, it actually feels way lighter. I am way more neurally prepared. So that speech preparedness, you could see I actually kind of went pretty erratic with 8H2DG, 8H2DG. What you're doing is you're overwarming up for the podcast. I know I'm not going to have to be a psychopath, even though I am on the podcast. And I know that I'm not going to have to speak that insanely on the podcast. But what I'm doing is overwarming up for it. So you can overwarm up for the day's event so that your execution of that task seems easier psychologically. Or you can also just silence the world with some simple meditation rather than trying to make it this giant thing. Interesting. I really like that visualization idea. I was doing that as you were speaking a little bit. And it's pretty profound. And one thing that I've noticed too is a lot of people when they're trying to get in the zone and get focused is they stimulate, right? They just try to activate as many stimulants as possible. For me personally, I found that, you know, destimulating has been the biggest benefit in terms of my personal focus. And I find that very interesting. Now, when it comes to performance, particularly in your position, and I think a lot of people listening share a similar position where they're not training to compete in an athletic sport, but Physical performance is very important to them, but they're also doing very cognitively requiring tasks that require cognitive energy throughout the day and peak cognition. How do you balance that? And I say that particularly for me, where if I want to emphasize peak physical performance, I'm going to be consuming a lot of carbohydrates. I'm going to be doing things that may not be conducive to my brain functioning at peak effort, as opposed to if I'm going for cognitive performance, that's when I'm going to be doing something like maybe intermittent fasting, right? Exogenous ketones, if not peaking into intermittent ketosis. How do you approach that as you obviously try to balance both the physical and the mental performance aspect? Sure. So there's definitely a, a uh, baseline that needs to be met for something like this, because you, you said actually destimulating is what helps you perform better. So in sports psychology, there's something known as a flow state. And uh, basically, you could see it just like this with respect to um, arousal. You will not perform well at a very low arousal state because you're a little bit too apathetic, a little too tired, not really focusing, you're not jazzed up enough. At the same time, if you're at a very high arousal state, you will also not perform well because you're too erratic. Your brain is like a squirrel 
you're not seeing the ice or the field properly. You're not, you're, your pattern recognition isn't kicking in because things are firing way too fast. Right in the middle is that flow state. So everybody is going to have a different state of flow based on their own predispositions and neurochemistry. So what I actually like to set up for people is a type of brain protocol to where you show me your weekly schedule. So let's say um, we can use my schedule, for example. On Mondays and Wednesdays, I do a lot of program design and video recording and lab interpretation for my athletes. On Tuesdays, I'm in meetings. I am writing scientific papers. So I'm pushing towards scientific advancement and innovation. Tuesday's also podcast day. Thursday is meetings all freaking day. Thursday is a damn Zoom marathon from like nine to four straight. So I need to actually be alert cognitively and have awesome appetite suppression on that day. And then Friday is a huge day where I do a full deep dive on a software that I'm currently developing that was going to automatically interpret labs in the way in which I do. And then output lifestyle training and nutrition recommendations and supplement recommendations on top of your lab results. So that's basically what my week looks like. What I do for athletes or say for a business executive is I would say, okay, you're obviously successful. Nobody who's successful doesn't have a routine. Show me your weekly routine. And then you're able to actually introduce certain things at the right time. So like lion's mane. Lion's mane can actually be quite good for cognition and focus and socialization. So if you struggle with cognition focus, and especially with socialization, if you're a super introvert, that actually might be good for podcast day. Whereas something like NuPep, something good for working memory, learning, memory recall, that's probably going to be something that's really good for software day, the development of something new, your ability to recall memory and patterns and things that you're developing. How about um, on Zoom day when I'm on Zoom from nine to four? Well, then utilizing certain appetite suppressants, but that keep you cognitively alert, like caffeine, like ketones. Uh, there's something known as amoxapine that can act as a nootropic, but then also have appetite suppressive effects. So what I'm basically trying to assess with the person that I'm working with, working with is, are they in a low arousal and they need to be brought up? Or are they in high arousal and they need to be brought down? Cool. I'm going to make that decision quite quick based on their intake questionnaire, they'll probably tell me or I'll probably be able to know, or I'm going to see their cortisol in the lab. I'm going to find out regardless. And then with that knowledge of natural disposition to arousal, I want to look at their daily schedule and create a cognition protocol on top of the physical training and recovery protocol that I'm designing for them as well. Gotcha. Yeah. You bring up a good point too. Different tasks require different cognitive states as you mentioned, being in front of a Zoom call all day, having to be sharp, having to have high verbal fluency is going to be completely different than accomplishing just operative tasks as opposed to creative work. So I think that's pretty interesting as well. And yeah, I, I think you brought up a good point. You know, no one who's really successful doesn't have a weekly uh, task or excuse me, a weekly routine. So I got to work on that. Now, one thing that you bring up as well, and I'm sure this applies to everybody, athletes, uh, executives, entrepreneurs, is is the importance of diet. But something that you said recently that's really interesting to me is like, there's no such thing as bad food. There are just bad diets. Now, I probably mean, I assume that means like the overall weekly trend of what you're consuming. But some something that I'm particularly interested in, and a lot of people are really bullish on now are these 
call them fad diets, call them overly restrictive diets, but carnivore in particular, carnivore and keto, I'm sure you've had people come to you and ask you, are they good? Are they bad? What are your thoughts on those restrictive diets as a whole? Is that not how people should approach dieting by being, by being dogmatic and by aligning with these overall ideals? Or do you think there's some merit to them? So it depends on the way in which you're approaching it. So I've got something that I call the owl mentality. Okay. Owl like the bird, the owl mentality. So when an owl eats a mouse, he actually eats the entire mouse, eats the whole thing. And then later on, he's able to spit out the fur and the bones. So the owl is able to consume everything, keep what's good and discard what's not. That's exactly how I view the industry. And I think it's the best way to achieve the highest state of not having a bias possible. I, I actively read books that I'm going to disagree with to either confirm A, that I disagree with it, or B, I might learn something and actually really pick something up from this thing that I already had this bias toward. So when it comes to the, the world of marketing, there's always a guy. There's the vegan guy, the fasting guy, the carnivore guy, the keto guy, the bodybuilding. Like there's always the guy. Trust me, that guy can teach you something. And that guy will add some sort of tool to your arsenal. And the greatest measure of success that a coach can have in this industry is the ability to be adaptable. Your ability to be adaptable will absolutely determine your ability to get results. Because everybody that comes to you has different genetics, different cultures, different people around them, different microbiomes, different immune, endocrine, brain chemistry makeups. We're all so different. So you're never going to be uh, at fault from somebody who's educated if you decide to learn all of these things and use the tool where it's appropriate. Do I think the carnivore diet is a tool? Yeah, I think it's a tool. Do I think it's a tool for the mass population? Absolutely not. There's, there's, uh, there's no way in which I would be able to comfortably lay my head on the pillow at night and think, yeah, that's exactly what everybody should be doing. That's it. I think that's like, it's one of the silliest things. And I know that you're into uh, to combat sports, so we can use the analogy of jujitsu. You could actually be like, you know what, Noah, this whole jujitsu thing's kind of bullshit. The whole art, it's bullshit. Do you know why? Because all you need is the triangle choke. If, if, you just, if you just have the triangle choke, you're going to be able to beat everybody that comes your way. And that sounds absolutely stupid. Yet in the world of nutrition, they say, you know what? All you need is a steak. <laughs> all you need is a steak. And all, this whole nutrition world is stupid. Forget fiber. Forget vegetables. Forget fruit. Forget carbs. Forget sports specificity. Forget uh, biochemical individuality. It's like the, these are things that we can't forget and we can't throw out. So a tool is only ever as good as it is applied. Be the owl. And then you're going to know when to use what tool. Just like um, you opened this up with me previously saying there is no such thing as a bad food. There's only such thing as a bad diet. You could also reword that to say there is no such thing as a bad diet, only the bad application of that diet. Absolutely. Yeah, I like that analogy. And that's where I think the issue is. It comes when people align their entire identity with that diet, right? Because when people are carnivore, that's their identity. And I see it all the time on Twitter. A lot of my friends are carnivore, but their entire brand is based around carnivore. And now their livelihood is around them following this diet. We see it particularly with veganism. And that's when it gets dangerous. That's what I really, what worries me is when people become ideological about their diets. And it's no longer about the facts. 
it's no longer about the application and how it's affecting them. And now they're doing things that have negative connotations to their health because they need to maintain that identity, which is terrifying. Um, but in terms of there not being any bad food, are there like, I know that that's a great saying, but surely there has to be some bad foods, right? Or maybe not bad foods, but bad ingredients, thing that, things that you think no matter what should not be consumed and are, you know, toxic. I, I know you mentioned like seed oils being a uh, less optimal food, but are there any on your no-go list that you see people consuming regularly and just ask yourself, like, why are people consuming this? So again, though, provided the context, any answer can be yes. Because if something helps you not binge, then it's probably a good idea. If something helps you not stress out to the max, then it's probably a good idea. Did you just run the Boston Marathon and you want to enjoy a giant plate of Thai food? Then hell yeah, dude, knock it out. Like the, the, there, there is a lot of situations where you can create the context to where calling something evil or bad just doesn't make sense. Um, I think context is so important in these situations. But if we are to remove context and we are to view ourselves as robots that have biochemistry, then probably trans fats is certainly a no-win situation. Yeah. Like in terms of everything should be viewed as in a cost-benefit analysis, trans fats just have costs. They're pro-inflammatory. A lot of people don't know they actually increase anxiety when you look at psychological profiles. A 3% increase in intake of trans fats increases your risk for a cardiovascular event by 25%. So that's like a very small intake resulting in a very large risk factor. So like that's a situation where, yeah, that's loss, loss. But if you have McDonald's fries once a year and that's like your thing, I'm not going to tell you not to do it because that's bad because I view nutrition like a batting average. You're not actually going to get a home run every single time, and I don't expect you to get a home run every time. You're not going to hit the ball every time, and I don't expect you to hit the ball every time. What I want out of you is a good batting average, though, because biology responds to adaptations over time. You will never be unhealthy after one meal. You'll never be unhealthy after one week. Where, how your body adapts is via averages over months and years. So, so long as you have an excellent batting average, I'm on your team. I like that. And I see that the same way when it comes to me and looking at like food and dietary guidelines, what I'm really looking at is what are people going to for their nutritional baselines, right? Like for daily sustenance. And then if that 5% at the end are suboptimal things, like I had ice cream the other day, you know, I, I even had a croissant, which I normally don't have. So I'm pretty, I'm not a fan of gluten. It doesn't do me well, but it's like, that isn't that 5%. I'm not going and having a croissant for breakfast every day. I'm not fueling my workouts with ice cream or fried foods, but I, I like that approach a lot. Now, obviously we can't have these discussions about food without discussing how that impacts not just us as a biological organism, but the entire colonies of biological organisms that live in our stomach. Uh, you mentioned in one of your podcasts that you know, the amount of bacteria in your stomach weighs more than your liver between two to five pounds. It should be considered an organ. I think, first of all, were you always, like you've been in this game for a long time now, was gut health something of a focus when you first started? Or was there a certain period of revelation where you're like, wow, this is very underrepresented in the nutrition and health space? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was around 2014, I would say, where I was uncovering the idea that the body will adapt to the degree that it is healthy. The healthier the organism is, the greater adaptive response I'm going to get from training. 
So you can imagine um, your adaptive reserve, right? In the gym, we have a training stimulus and everything we do outside of the gym determines whether or not we actually adapt to that training stimulus. We don't get bigger or stronger in the gym. We stimulate strength or muscle development in the gym. And then our habits outside of the gym determine whether or not we actually adapt and respond to that stimulus. So if you imagine that you have an adaptive reserve that looks like a pie chart, well, your adaptive reserve is always going to go towards survival mechanisms before your biceps. No matter how much you want big arms, if you have an existing bacterial overgrowth, or if you have a heavy metal exposure, or if you have environmental pollutant exposure, or if you have an, an autoimmune issue, if you have poor sleep or high stress, your body, 10 times out of 10, is going to prioritize survival of the organism as a whole first, and then adaptations for performance and cosmetics after. There is a biological hierarchy that exists to ensure you survive rather than get big arms so you can go to the beach. So this thing, this kind of revelation hit me right across the head in 2014 because um, people were coming to me because I'm a functional medicine practitioner. So people were coming to me with, uh, with migraines. People are coming to me with diarrhea. People coming to me with constipation, people coming to me with low libido, right? And I was finding ways to solve these things, but then they were getting leaner and they were performing better in their workouts. They're telling me that they're sleeping better. And I'm like, hold on. Everything is connected to everything here. The organs are not in their individual silos. Everything is connected to everything. And by the way, if you want a super nerdy exercise to do, pick an organ and then pick another organ and then type in axis. You're going to find it, the gut brain access, the liver thyroid access, the gonadal brain access. Like you're going to find all they they communicate constantly with each other, and the efficacy of that communication is going to be dependent upon your ability to remove what I call hidden stressors. So things you can't see from the inside out, be it a micronutrient deficiency or the other examples I provided earlier, your ability to remove stressors from physiology is your ability to remove components currently taking up space in your adaptive reserve. Now, the reason I prefaced all of that is because gut health is a huge one, man. You talk to the average person and they're answering truthfully about things like constipation or intermittent loose stools or bloating, um, gas, very stinky, stenchy gas, belching, acid reflux. These things are so unbelievably common, but they're not normal. There's a big difference between common and normal. The average person is unhealthy, so I don't really care what's common. Just because it's common, it doesn't mean it's normal physiologic function. So I need to identify what the heck is going on in the gut, remove that hidden stressor at the cellular level, which opens up their adaptive reserve and allows them to reach a new potential. The gut thing hit me because it was forced to hit me because of how many people were simply coming to me with those issues and the enormous results that I saw afterward by resolving that. That's, yeah, that's incredible. It is ridiculous how profound gut health is. And you know, I think everybody tries to dig down to the root causes and they point at things like pesticides, glyphosate, you know, potentially parasites, um, antibiotic, rampant use of antibiotics and antimicrobials in daily life. I mean, even the dish soap that we use, right? That's potent antimicrobial that we're inevitably eating. 
what through all the clients that you've seen with these problems and i've gone through some of your topics on that and you discussing different bacterial strains that people have dealt with have there been any consistencies in what's potentially causing this rampant widespread gut like these rampant widespread gut issues from dysbiosis to intestinal permeability are there any consistencies or like common root causes stress stress, stress. is a giant oh yeah man like if there is many sophisticated conversations that you and I could have about specific strands and like the enzymatic reactions of those strands and like very geeky stuff that you and I think is awesome, but is like a one percenter kind of situation. But when it comes to stress management, okay, so this is extremely well established in the literature, by the way, stress alone induces states of hypochlorhydria. So hypo absence of chlorhydria, stomach acid. Stress alone induces states of hypochlorhydria. So your stomach, your hydrochloric acid, it sits in the stomach and it's got three huge functions. Number one, its presence actually closes the pyloric sphincter. So mm -hmm. you're supposed to have stomach acid to reduce acid reflux. When you don't have a lot of stomach acid is actually when you get acid reflux because you don't have the stomach acid present in order to cause an efficient closure of the pyloric sphincter. So what happens is people have stress-induced hypochlorhydria and then they get acid reflux and then they take antacids to make the problem even worse. And then they wonder why they've been on antacids for the past decade because you, you are suppressing the symptom. You've never actually dealt with the root cause of the problem. Okay, you made yourself feel better, but you didn't fix anything. So that's one big function of um, stomach acid. A second big function of stomach acid is it activates the enzyme pepsin to its active form so that you can properly break protein down into peptide chains and amino acids. This is super important for athletes and really anybody exercising because you aren't what you eat. You only are what you eat and actually absorb. So you can imagine in a state of hypochlorhydria, having your 50 grams of whey post-workout and not properly breaking it down. And then you're going to be bloated. You're going to have protein farts, which aren't a thing. That's just bad digestion. Protein farts, that's not a thing. That's bad digestion. That's, that's crazy. That the, the way we rationalize things is so bizarre. Yeah, you got protein farts. No, you don't. That's, that's inefficient digestion, man. Jesus. So if you have poor digestion of protein, then your ability to adapt from a stimulus is reduced because your ability to properly recover in between training sessions is reduced. So this actually reduces your adaptive potential and actually reduces your maximum recoverable volume. So the amount you can actually do in the gym and properly recover from will be capped because of your digestive tract. So when you improve digestive efficiency, you're actually able to increase training volume and therefore increase stimulus and therefore increase adaptation. So that's a huge entire chain. Not to mention that amino acids are precursors to neurotransmitters. So things mm. like serotonin, things like dopamine, things like epinephrine, norepinephrine, that actually all comes from your protein. We can't make those for free. There's no free lunches in physiology. So if we don't properly break that down, then we're actually going to be missing out of the mental game on top of all the adaptive stuff I just talked about. So that is a second function of stomach acid. A third function of stomach acid is more uh, anatomically geography related in the fact that there is a reason that the first digestive organ that food falls into is a vat of acid because <laughs> it is supposed to murder pathogenic species before it enters the small intestine and possibly into circulation. 
So when you ask me, hey, man, is there like a common trend you see with dysbiosis or overgrowth? Yeah, people have hypochlorhydria, which reduces their ability to eliminate pathogens. So then those pathogens are able to enter the small intestine and ultimately into the body. So what we just created is a situation with our mind to kind of tie back into the beginning with visualization and all of that. Our mind impacts our physiology because our mind can create hypochlorhydria, which reduces our protein uptake and reduces our adaptive potential and maximum recoverable volume. It also increases our acid reflux in that sense to reduce our quality of life and our sleep quality at night. So when we're laying down, that's where we're going to get the most acid reflux. Lastly, we're going to create bacterial overgrowth and possible parasitic issues and fungal issues in the long run, because although our food looks clean to the naked eye, we don't actually know because these things are microscopic and they need to be murdered before they enter our actual system. So if there's a common trend with gut health, well, there's a common trend with stress. And those two are like brother and sister. You need to work on both at the same time if you really want the best results possible. Yeah, well, I mean, that was an incredible layout of how interconnected everything is with gut health, right? Because all of the rabbit holes that I've recently gone down, and it sounds like you've spent a lot of time in these areas too, with parasites, with mineral imbalances, with heavy metal toxicity, they all in one way or another correlate with the function of your digestive system. When, when you think about it, we're just like one very large digestive system. But that's really interesting. And, you know, it, it's so frustrating. I've heard this from so many people that go into a doctor allopathic or osteopathic and with with uh, acid reflux and they prescribe antacids which is the craziest thing ever i like that you brought up you know amino acids for neurotransmitter function i, I come more from like the biohacking uh, space from a nootropic standpoint and cognitive function and uh, one of the best things that i've done was incorporating essential amino acids for those neurotransmitter precursors and when i like i got those gut issues when i was training a lot of muay thai and jiu-jitsu just chronically overtraining, intermittent fasting, eating a high vegetable diet, which means a lot of fiber, a lot of anti-nutrients. And man, my entire health just was destroyed. Like all of the symptoms that you mentioned were all, you know, all coming at the same time. And it wasn't until I switched over to Stan Efferding's uh, vertical diet that prioritized digestion did my entire life change. Now, with that being said, and bringing up Stan Efferding and optimization for, uh, digestion. Is that a priority with all of your nutrition protocols? Is digestion one of the top things or does it very much depend on the existing digestive state of the individual? Um, I always hesitate to, to suggest anything as a top thing because everything is connected to everything, right? Mm -hmm. Like we just learned the mind is connected to so many different things. Um, I, we, I think that biology is infinitely smarter than we'll ever be. Biology has answered questions that we don't even know are questions yet. So for me to, to have almost the arrogance that the microbiome is more important than the liver, or for now, the immune system is more important than this. Like I, I, I always hesitate a lot. And I know that's not how you're positioning the question or what you feel. But I, for the audience, I, I'm always so big on a complete analysis. So when someone comes my way, um, I basically have an outside-in and inside-out approach. So from the outside-in, I want you to fill out my comprehensive battery of questionnaires. So I want to know what you're eating, when you're eating it, what toothpaste you use, um, what your mood state is like, your stress, your subjective symptoms with respect to stress, digestion, recovery, all these things from the outside in. But then I also undergo a comprehensive battery of lab tests. So when somebody comes and works with me, I actually do blood, urine, saliva, and stool testing up front. 
So it's not like this a la carte thing of maybe we'll just do blood here and then maybe we'll just do slide. I don't do that because everything's connected to everything. So it's way better to just wait and then get it all done when you can. Because when I'm done with my uh, blood, urine, saliva, and stool testing, I have over 500 biomarkers to work with in order to identify the weak links in your chain that are going to be able to open up your adaptive reserve and take you to the next level. Micronutrient status, electrolyte status, neurotransmitter status, microbiome, hormones, immunology, you name it, I'm going to measure it, manage it, and design a protocol for it. And I use that outside in and inside out approach to really give you the 360 degree view of your physiology in a truly no stones unturned approach. And I say all of this because whatever priority pops up from that is what I'm going to be programming for. So not just the gut, it can be the gut. And it certainly is often because many people have gut issues and gut symptoms. But when you have an approach like that, like one thing I love about labs is their beautiful way of not giving a shit how you feel. They don't care if you love your current diet. They don't care um, if they hurt your feelings with the results. They don't care if they don't fit the coach's bias at the time. Maybe his protocol didn't work. Labs don't care about any of that. So when you're able to do this assessment, you're able to get a non-biased viewpoint of what tool you should be applying at this point in time to get the best results. So gut's huge, but everything else is huge. And a program will only be ever as good as its initial analysis process. Absolutely. Yeah, I have written down right here something that you said about through hair, urine, and stool and blood testing, I analyze over 500 biomarkers for health, performance, career longevity, brain chemistry, and recovery status. Now, those are great, right? I think the future of lab testing, especially with what Brian Johnson's doing now with the blueprint, it's going to just become more and more quantifiable. Now, the question that I always have is how credible are each of these tests? Do you take them with a grain of salt? Do you just, you know, do you have trust and faith in their accuracy? Are there some that you used to think were accurate and now you are a little bit more skeptical of? How, How do you approach those in a holistic manner? Yeah. Awesome question, man. Because a lot of people don't actually ask that. A lot of people think just because you got a lab, it means it's true. Um, And one of my favorite labs is the reason why my absolute favorite lab is the blood chemistry test. It's been around the longest. It has decades of research behind it that you can infer confident uh, results from and data from and uh, correlations to. But it also has decades of sophisticated machinery accurately processing that specimen. So you know the result is the result is the result. So like from an accuracy of specimen processing and amount of data that you can pull from the literature, that's the reason you can get this blood test in Toronto, LA, Hong Kong, Moscow, uh, London. It doesn't matter where you are. You can get this everywhere because it is that validated. Okay. So that is the absolute best test that you could ever do. Um, What was it called? Sorry. A blood chemistry test, just like your basic blood chemistry. Oh, the basic Uh, blood chemistry? Yeah, yeah, basic blood chemistry. If you get a CBC and a CMP, so a complete blood count and a comprehensive metabolic panel, that's something you could just get from your basic doc. But the value is not in the test. It's in the interpretation of the test. And that's the cornerstone of like my software that's coming up. It's the cornerstone of how I operate now. There is so much you can infer from, uh, from just a simple blood test and assessing micronutrients and multiple organ systems of the body. So like, uh, for example, MCVs above uh, 95 associated B12 and folate insufficiency, um, low alkaline phosphatase associated to low zinc. 
um, elevated fasting glucose associated to thiamine deficiencies. Um, uh, there's so many things that you can pull from there. We're, we talked about gut health for a while. If you have iron is actually a bacterial uh, overgrowth factor. So iron, it's been said that iron is like chocolate to bacteria. That's a saying in the, in the, in the scientific world because I, bacteria actually utilizes and depends upon iron for its growth. So bacteria is actually using it as a growth factor. So one thing you'll see on a blood test is actually reduced serum iron with increased ferritin because that's actually a known host defense mechanism to limit access of iron to an existing bacterial infection because serum iron is floating around in the blood, whereas ferritin is a representation of stored iron. So your body will actually store a lot of iron in a host defensive mechanism to not provide serum iron availability to the existing infection that you're dealing with that you don't know about because you haven't done a stool test. So these blood tests, without a doubt, I could, I'm very confident I could do Monday to Friday, nine to five, just on a basic blood chemistry test. There's so, so much to learn from that. So that I mean it when I say that's the cornerstone of my career. Uh, beyond this, you have urine, salivary, and stool testing. This is where you actually have to do your own dive into the literature like I had to do over the past 10 years because a lot of those markers, they look fancy and they look great, but they're not as validated as the lab company would have you believe. Uh, there's many organic acids that really aren't even worth looking at. Um, same with stool markers and reference ranges for microbiomes. Like, come on, dude. Like if you got a marathon runner in Egypt eating that cultural diet, then his microbiome reference range of bacterial makeup is supposed to be the same as mine. A meathead bro in Canada who trains in his basement, like that, it's absolutely impossible that we're going to have the identical uh, microbiome reference ranges. Pathogen detection is great. Occult blood is good. Yes, NFL protein X, calprotectin, secretory IgA. These are very validated things that you can draw a lot from in stool tests, but you need to know what you're looking for. So, in a long roundabout way of answering your question, hang your hat on blood chemistry. And if you want to master something, master blood chemistry because you're actually going to be able to gain from a blood test a lot of what you're going to gain from urine saliva stool with that said once you do understand the true literature behind urine, urine saliva stool they do provide immense value i can imagine so man here's the deal with all of this stuff you know you start to think that you understand something and then you realize that there's a whole nother layer to the onion and that happens just <laughs> yeah. over and over and over again you know it's the dunning kruger effect in action i think i know something and then someone comes and just blows the roof off of it. Now, when you're looking at over 500 biomarkers, it sounds impossible to start with that. So when you were first starting out, were you just looking at CBC and CMP and just slowly add on as that onion peeled more and more back? Or how did that progression happen for you in this development of having a more holistic and full view of you know, lab tests in general and overall biological health? Yeah. So in the, in the beginning, I was actually looking at CBC and CMPs because my clients could get them from their doctor. So that's how I was just, uh, I started as a personal trainer in Gold's gym. So like I, I was just trying, I had no budget for anything <laughs> and uh, lots of times neither did my clients. So we were working with minimal viable processes and that's actually how you get excellent at uh, creating sophisticated questionnaires to gain a lot of information from the outside in to allow you to predict trends from the inside out. But um, I was actually getting CBC and CMPs from my clients because they were just doing their yearly physicals anyways. And I was like, throw me, throw me some of that. We'll see what's going on. 
And then I was doing salivary testing because that was just an easy thing I had access to. And at the time, I thought that those were excellent. <laughs> at the time, I thought that those were super excellent, super validated until, uh, until I started looking more in the research. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. This, this is definitely not something that I can hang my hat on. Um, with respect to, say, a cortisol curve, for example, your four-point salivary cortisol test, um, that is far too acute to gain a protocol from. If you look in the literature, there can actually be 20x differences. So there's an awesome study out there. The title of it is failing to, to hit me right now. But um, it followed people for 30 days, and they did salivary tests for 30 days. And there's a 20x difference between markers of where they were at across the 30 days. 20x. Um, so the fact that you can kind of do one test and make massive assumptions is, uh, is simply incorrect. So what I like to recommend now is that you would actually want to do six tests and then gain an average from it with respect to a cortisol curve. Um, if, if the audience is unfamiliar, I apologize. There's a four-point cortisol test that's a circadian rhythm um, function test, and it also cortisol is a stress hormone, so you're assessing stressors at certain points of the day and gaining inferences from that. Um, what I like to do now would be a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, week one, Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, week two. Submit all of those tests and then create an average. That's when you're going to get an actual average four-point test because free cortisol, that is a free hormone that is subject to stress. Bad traffic could have thrown it off. An argument, a stupid argument with your girl about the dishwasher could have thrown <laughs> that off. Your training can throw that off. Your coffee can throw that off. So you actually, you absolutely need an average. One thing you can, though, work with a lot is known as a cortisol awakening response, a CIR. Um, that one is much more repeatable and valid because it's in your 60 minutes, first 60 minutes upon waking with no caffeine. So basically, the day hasn't had the chance to kick your ass yet in order to create a lot of massive variation. Because you wake up, you do your test, 30 minutes later, do your test, 60 minutes later, do your test. You've got that done in the first hour, and then, then the day can kick your ass. But free cortisol hasn't really had a chance to, um, you're doing the measurement before the day has had a chance to kick your ass. That one is, you can hang your hat a little bit more on that. But yeah, back in the day, I did blood work and just a salivary test, began looking more into blood work and began properly validating my salivary testing that I was doing uh, back in the day. And then from there, you just master these things. So then you add one more technique and add another technique, just like you would in jujitsu. You're adding one more because the other one's kind of on autopilot. And then you really master that one and you add one more because that one's now on autopilot and you're progressively building your skill set. So I would say I began with 20 markers and now it's usually between five and 600. Wow. And that's over a 10 year period. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. And so you said you were a functional, functional health, functional medicine, uh, personal trainer, functional health, functional medicine. Throughout this process, was this all, you know, I guess the one thing that I saw when I was going through all of your content in preparation for this is just the sheer amount of prolificness that you have, not just with the research and the studies, but like the content. And I was just curious, like, was this all self-learned, self-taught? Like, how have you structured this to build this foundation of knowledge and understanding in very deep, nuanced fields of health that are seemingly disparate, but, you know, all, all obviously connect? Yeah, I really appreciate that, man. Um, in like a weird, almost kind of hippy-dippy way, I almost feel like it's out of my control 
Um, I can't stop thinking about it. I, I feel like I'm. Uh, this is why I'm on this planet. I'm here to do something to healthcare. And I believe an enormous part of that is going to be my lab interpretation software to bring lab to the next level and allow people to see labs the way I do in an automated and algorithmic way. Um, I, I, there's nothing was systemized, nothing was planned. I, I'm pulled every day to wake up. Um, my, my own alarm clock goes off between 3 and 4.30 every single morning. Um, and it's I wake up and I want to go do this stuff. I, I'm vibrating at a different frequency when I think about health because none of that stuff that you're saying is a wide spectrum. None of that disinterests me. I want to know urine testing. I want to know about hormones. I also want to know HRV. I also want to know mobility. I want to know myofascial release. I want to read about the carnivore diet. It doesn't matter. So like nothing was systematic except the owl mentality. That was the only thing that was systematic is the fact that I do want to consume all of this. And then based on my ability to reference the research and remove my bias, I want to use the right tool at the right time. And I would I would actually encourage anybody listening who might feel like they don't have an interest to understand that I didn't either. Like I'm, I'm known as a real lab specialist now, but I would consider myself a generalist in many ways. And uh, I think a generalist can be even more impactful than a specialist because of their ability to see systems as one whole functioning unit rather than in their individual silos. So I did all these certifications, the schooling, all this stuff, but there was never a systematic plan to it, only a huge amount of passion and uh, a willingness and, and need to get my clients the best results. That's incredible. And that's so inspiring to hear as someone who's also, you know, just in, infatuated and and uncontrollably obsessed with health and it's really cool to see all the stuff that you're putting out um i like to hear that it really wasn't a plan it was just a natural pull and dan i really appreciate you coming on i this has really inspired me to dig deeper uh just going through your content alone i was like oh my god like so many big you know moments blew up and there there could have been so many other things we could have talked about but i really appreciate it is there anything else you've got going on new that you want to talk about i know you've got the software coming out which i'm really excited to see any new info products or anything like that? Um, not so much. The software is my main baby right now. I should have a beta version ready this summer. And uh, I'm so excited about that. If anybody's interested in working with me, uh, I'd say I accept clients through rapidhealthreport.com. And we work uh, internationally and nationally. So um, no matter who you are, you can come work with us at rapidhealthreport.com. My Instagram's over at Dan Garner Nutrition. And uh, I built a brain protocol with uh, Sugar Sean O'Malley, one of my UFC fighters. And um, that's the brain synergy protocol. It's a post-concussion system. And uh, you can find that just through the link in my bio on Instagram. Yeah, we're checking that out before this. It's really awesome. Dan, once again, thank you for coming on. I will have all those links in the show notes. You have a great day. Beautiful. Thanks so much, man. Thank you.